<laughs> All right, everybody, welcome back to the Millennial Sales Podcast. This is your host, Tommy Tahoe, on a journey to help young salespeople get to the next level in their career uh, while I'm on the path also. So thanks for joining. Um, got a great episode. We're doing a little bit of a throwback this week. We're going to try this out um, to episode 86 from a few years ago um, with Chris Voss. If you know him, you probably know him from his book, best-selling book, one of the best sales books ever written, never split the difference. Um, before that, he was the lead hostage negotiator for the FBI uh, for 24 years. So when bad guys uh, kidnapped people from the U.S., he would be the first person that would make that call to a terrorist to negotiate, right? And that's really the basis of the book, Never Split the Difference. You can't say, if they kidnap two people, you can't say, all right, you take one and, and we'll take one and, and split it like you might want to do in a sales conversation where you just want to meet halfway. Um, he has to get everything back and really give up nothing in return. So that was his whole job. He's amazing. Um, he's a speaker and, and writer and you know super popular now. Um, I caught him on his upswing, so I'll, I'll give myself props for that. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode where we talk about how he... Um, suggest someone can take his negotiation tactics into a sales career. Uh, I love talking to Chris. Um, let's before we get into that conversation, let's make sure you're subscribed on Apple, on Spotify, on YouTube. Uh, I'm Tommy Tahoe on Twitter and LinkedIn, where I'm posting every single day. Uh, excuse me, on Twitter and Instagram. On LinkedIn, I'm, I'm Tom Alamo. That's my name. Um, and the last note is we'll, we'll talk about our sponsor for a second. Postal.io is the flagship partner of the Millennial Sales Podcast, and they are the most customized way that you can send gifts to customers and prospects, right? So instead of the generic uh, Uber gift card or something, right, you can send, uh, you could still send those things if you'd like, but you could send a more personalized gift, like something from a local brewery or winery or florist or something that really helps to, to break the ice. I think the whole job of sales has you know, flipped on its head with COVID. It's so hard to build relationships, so hard to build trust. And these little things uh, really go a long way. And something that I've seen that really helps uh, at that you know, I've seen SDRs do is send a, like a 5 to $10 Starbucks gift card ahead of an intro call and uh, use that as, hey, thanks for taking the time. Have a coffee on me. Right? And you send that like 15 minutes or 30 minutes before the call. Not only is that going to uh, more likely get them to accept the meeting and actually show up, but they have a positive, uh, you know, kind of vibe about your company ahead of time, right? That we're being selfless. Um, there's maybe an act of reciprocity there. Um, we're trying to build a relationship, right? And um, we're not asking for anything in return. Um, you know, they get the gift card even if they don't show up to the meeting, frankly. So um, I love that move. Check them out, postal.io. We got some cool giveaways and stuff that are going to be coming later this quarter as well. Um, so show some support to them, show some love to me, uh, without further ado, let's get into my conversation with the Chris Voss. Let's go. Good morning and welcome to another episode of the millennial momentum podcast. This is your host. Tom Alamo. I am at Tommy Tahoe on Twitter and Instagram. Thanks for joining today. And 
For those that are not familiar with the podcast, welcome. This is a millennial personal development podcast, and I really think in order to get to the next level, if you want to make more money, if you want to have a better relationship, get promoted, get healthier, you need three things. You need effort, you need a positive attitude, and just a little momentum, which is forward motion with energy. And I'm hoping that this show and the blog and everything I do can be give you a little bit momentum to uh, move forward to whatever stage you want to get to in life. Uh, and, you know, it's for me too. It's for me to get there, share my learning, share my ups and downs. And I appreciate you joining and grateful for everyone that's following around in the community we're building up. So if you find value here, if you like it, head to iTunes, subscribe, rate it. It means so much to do that. I, I take everyone to heart. Um, you can hit me up on social media and all other info is on millennialmomentum.net. Now let's get into this this interview and kicking off who today's is. I have rarely gotten a book suggested to me as frequently as the one that this guest wrote. Free people from all over the woodwork, business and sales and life, and um, everyone was saying, "You got to read this book. You got to read this book." And you know, I was telling them, "Hey, I read it, and I'm having them on the podcast, so I'm I'm excited to get this one out here." Um, it's about negotiation. It's such an important skill to master, whether it's your job salary, whether you're selling something, or whether you just want to get some money off the next shoes you buy or talking to your significant other about what you want to eat for dinner tonight. Um, and there's no one that knows negotiation better on this planet than Chris Voss. Prior to 2008, Chris was the lead international kidnapping negotiator for the FBI. He dealt with over 150 kidnappings over his 24-year career with the FBI. So put shortly, when bad guys captured Americans, Chris was the number one guy they called. And before that, he was dealing with bank robberies. He was dealing with suicide hotlines, just the most pressure-packed situations that you could imagine. Um, He's won a ton of awards uh, for his work with the FBI and with the government. Now he runs the Black Swan Consulting Group. He's the CEO, and he teaches his practices to uh, businesses. And he also teaches negotiation at USC in Georgetown. And he wrote the best-selling book, Never Split the Difference, Negotiating as If Your Life Depended on It. And like I mentioned, this was highly recommended to me. I am now highly recommending it. It is a great read. And I love talking to Chris about how he gets into negotiations with terrorists, how he translates that to business, and he has some some good stories from that. And you know, we also talk about really practical tips you can use in your day to day, like you know how do you kick off a meeting, and you know how should you what should you be looking for for your next salary negotiation, and he names all these things that you should be looking at outside of just the money. Uh, and it's really going to help you for your long-term benefit. Um, you know, how to deal with people that you just don't see eye to eye with, or maybe even people that you hate. And, um, you know, Chris just adds so much value. He says the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know you're in. And God, I love that. He was, he's a blast. He's a great guy. One of the best negotiators, I'm sure, that has ever walked this planet. Please, allow me to introduce former FBI negotiator, Chris Voss. 
All right, Chris Voss, good afternoon. How you doing? Welcome to the show. I'm fantastic. Thank you for having me on. Yeah, I've, I have not gotten recommendations for a book as frequently as I did for yours. Uh, I had people all the time, they know I'm a frequent reader, uh, and especially about sales and, and business. And I had probably a dozen people tell me in the last year to pick up your book. So I finally did. Uh, I went through it, been listening to you on all the podcasts. So I'm excited to have you on here to talk about negotiation, sales, business, your experience, and, and everything else that we, we get to. Excellent. Thank you, man. I'm, I'm happy to hear that people are still loving the book and recommending it. Yeah, they are. And, and I'm re recommending it too. We can get into, we'll get into the book specifically in a bit. Um, I wanted to kick off this conversation with asking about you know, how you kick off your negotiation strategies. And I know that I've heard you say that you like to let the other side go first, but you know, when you're starting off a negotiation, whether it's with terrorists or whether it's with a business deal or whether it's maybe in your personal life, how do you tend to kick off the conversation uh, in a way that's most suitable for you? Well, the other side's got stuff they're dying to say. I mean, it doesn't matter what the circumstances are and, and you know, you, the parallels. Is it a business negotiation? Is it with a terrorist? Is it with in my personal life? I mean, everybody's got stuff they'd love to get across. So I'm, I want you to feel comfortable getting that stuff across. I want to hear it because I want to know where you're coming from. And since everybody's got stuff to dying to say, it doesn't take much to get them started. It really doesn't. And so you might just start with small talk or you might just ask a general question and see how they take the conversation from there. No, interesting. Good point. Um, I'm not much into small talk. Um, and uh, people misunderstand the purpose of small talk anyway. They think it's to waste time <laughs> or because you yeah. don't know what else to say or to show that you right. can make small talk. Like uh, small talk is just is to gain a feel for the other side so that when they get into the important stuff, you have a feel for them. Are they being honest? Are they uh, deceiving you? Are they being straightforward? Are they, are they guarded? Whatever it might be. I can find that out in the conversation and you're going to give me a lot better indicators in the actual conversation itself. So if you might, you might start off with, look, have you got a few minutes to talk? I'm going to say, sounds like there's something on your mind. I'm going to, I'm going to get right into it. I want you to feel comfortable. I don't want you to feel like you need to be guarded. People are guarded because they're going to be attacked or judged or disapproved of or corrected or any one of the number of things that make a bad conversation. I don't do that stuff. So you're safe to talk with me right off the bat and you're, you're going to want to get into it with me. So the, one of the main points, at least for the beginning and probably throughout the whole conversation and conversations is making them feel safe so that they can eventually open up and you can uh, uncover what you would call the unknowns. And I actually just heard uh, when I was doing some of the prep that your company, Black Swan, is named after you know, your thought that there's always unknowns at, in every negotiation that you're trying yeah. to uncover. Because if you don't, if, if you continue to not know what the unknowns are, uh, it, it hurts your position and makes it less likely that you can ultimately uh, come to the agreement that you want to. Right. Yeah. I mean, I mean it's intellectually, it's a simple thing to explain, but a lot of people that think they know everything, you know, they have trouble accepting it, but there's never a time at a negotiation where you're not hiding stuff. Every, everybody that enters a negotiation 
this closely held important information they're keeping to themselves. It's just the nature of the world. Well, if you are, so are they. So you can't know everything. Now, interestingly enough, where the really cool stuff is, where do the unknowns overlap? And until you get people exchanging information, honestly, you don't know what's possible until people have started to have a peek at each other's cards. And that's why you can't know for sure the best outcome until you've had a good, solid interaction. And where do you draw the line of letting people know what your unknowns are, kind of revealing your cards, so to speak, versus keeping some in the back pocket for a certain scenario? Like how, how do you use transparency versus, hey, I need to keep some of my motives secret so I can use them at the right time or not hurt my position? Yeah, well, that's... Yeah, that's you taking you hostage. Like, you know, like, let's say you got a one week deadline to get a deal done. You could say, oh, my God, you know, I got I got I got a week to get this done. If I tell them that I got all kinds of problems Or you can approach the negotiation. You can say to the other side, look, if you don't come to agreement with me in a week, I'm going to walk. You got one week to get this done or I got to go elsewhere. So the, what most people see to themselves, you know, what a weak negotiator sees is a disadvantage. The shrewd negotiator realizes where you know his advantages are. It's it's all in how you play it. It's all in whether or not you're going to take yourself hostage. Um, we also believe very strongly that you hurt yourself far more with bad deals than you will ever hurt yourself by passing a de- on a deal. Which means, I would much rather walk than take a bad deal. I'm not going to take myself hostage. Bad deals kill businesses or chasing bad deals is what really kills businesses. As soon as you stop doing that, then you stop taking yourself hostage. So is it safe to say that in a business standpoint, and I'm I'm sure the answer might be different from what you're doing at the FBI, but from a business standpoint that you don't lose negotiations anymore because if you feel like, hey, look, this person's just not responding in the way that I'd like, and I don't think my desired outcome is going to happen, so I'm going to walk. So would you say that it's fair to say that you don't lose negotiations in the business realm because you choose to walk away? Yeah. I mean, I mean that's completely it. I mean, we, we, we don't chase bad business. Mm-hmm. We've made some bad deals. You know, we're not automatically smart. Like, very early on in the existence of my company, we made an agreement for an extremely lucrative contract. It was supposed to pay out over a year and it turned into being one of the most painful experiences of my life. And it was three years of blood money. And at that point in time, we're like, we're never taking another bad deal again because blood money is not worth it. And so we, you know, we went through it and, and, and we're at the point now where if a potential business partner is a big pain in the neck from the beginning, we're probably not going to do business with them or we may do business for a very short period of time because you're a pain in the neck, but in the short term you're worth it, but we're going to walk. I mean, there's just, there's, it's hard for people to appreciate this in the early going when they're desperate for deals, but there are too many good deals out there to, to waste your time with bad deals and bad business partners. Yeah. So maybe in to hone that in a little bit too, let's say you're running a business or you're a salesperson, right? there's a lot of potential deals that you can be sung. There's a lot of customers that you can have in the world and it's not worth your time, your effort and your energy 
to put all these resources into something that is not going to be mutually beneficial. You, you have maybe an underlying feeling that they might not do what they say they're going to do, or they might try to you know cut some things out from under you, or they might just be a general pain in the ass, um, and they're not worth you know what you're putting into it. Yeah, a thousand percent. And it's a hard lesson, especially when you're starting out and you're desperate for sales, you're desperate for business. But, you know, you're, you're going to chase a bad deal for six months and, and either not get it or lose money on it. I mean, you could have you could have chased 10 other deals and made good deals in, in, the, in the meantime. It's just I think it's the biggest killer of careers in company. Is there a specific deal? I know you mentioned that one where. You, you brought in a very lucrative contract and it turned out to be really a pain for several years after that. Is there a specific deal, whether it's that one or another one, where you were using a tactic that turned out to be a failure um, or it helped you learn a new tactic because you know it was employed on you and maybe a deal that went awry uh, that led to you learning and uncovering a new tactic that has helped you in, in negotiations today? You know, I wouldn't say that... that- we haven't really, we've advanced tactics even since the book came out. The other thing that we've become really aware of is um, the hardcore negotiator that's going to string you out and never make the deal with you is real common out there. Um, the, the, the idea, the fool in the game, the rabbit, if you will. A lot of companies are pumping other companies. A lot of people are pumping other people for information and they're never going to do the deal with. And we, that's a lot more pervasive than we realized it was when I first came out of the government and started teaching us. And really, since the book came out, we pretty much discovered this, this as, a, as a critical issue in business um, to be a much bigger problem than we realized when the book came out. And we're much more sensitive now. Some people refer to it, we refer to it as a ref, the, the fool in a game. Some people call it the rabbit in the deal. You're your only position there is to drive the terms down on other people, but you're never going to get the deal. They want you to slash your price. They want you to give them better terms, but they're never going to give it to you. They're just trying to give it to the favorite and use you against the favorite. And that's a huge problem in, in the private sector. And how is there a way that you can identify when that's happening to you? Well, yeah. yeah. I mean, you, you get the other side talking first. Uh, that, that's the big problem with showing up and making your sales pitch. Yeah or your value proposition. We want to know right away, early on, what the counterpart is looking for in us and instead of us making our pitch. Let's say you know there are 10 reasons to do business with you, but only three of them matter to the other side. You start with one through 10, you're wasting their time because you're going to be talking about seven things they don't care about. You know, We like to ask people right off the bat, I mean, what's most important to you? How, how did you find us? What are we bringing to the table that you like? Almost questioning it from the very beginning, because if they can't answer those questions, they're really not looking to do business with us. So you're almost luring them in to pitch you on, hey, we're talking to you because you know uh, uh, we read your book and we've listened to these podcasts and we, you know, we're really struggling our negotiations or whatever, you know, the the ten things are for Black Swan, and you kind of get them to almost pitch themselves on the idea of working with you. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly it. And and if they can't do that, they're not going to do business with us. We, we get drawn into 
RF, ask for RFPs all the time. I mean, uh, about a year or so ago, we got, we got a, a pitch from uh, Lufthansa wanted us to compete for business with them. And it's typical of these giant corporations. They, they think they're so big and sexy, they can really push their vendors around. And I, I just, you know, and we, we, don't, we don't do RFPs. We don't do beauty contests. I'd never heard of these people. So I already know there's an inside track. Lufthansa wasn't created last night, which means they've got a training contract with somebody they've been doing it for a while. So I already know they got a favorite. There's no way they don't. And what are they, what are they, what are they really after? They want better terms from their favorite. They're going to play us off against them. We just refuse to play. We just, I'm just, I'm not going to do it. You can, you know, from the circumstances, whether there should be somebody there already, if there's, if there's not, and they, uh, that's probably unlikely, but do they really want to switch? Why would they switch away from who they're doing business with now? Maybe they do, but if they want to switch, I got to know why I got to find out or I'm wasting everybody's time. And that seems like a major piece of why you're successful is the discipline in your negotiation, right? You, you've, uncovered these skills and so many patterns throughout the years that you have a pretty good gut feeling on where if a certain opportunity is is good or not and not getting blinded by maybe a big dollar sign or a big company coming at you um, and being able to be disciplined and say hey i don't care that this says you know however much money i think that this is a a, a coy we, we might seek it out very briefly and then after that we'll let it pass there'll be other deals that come along yeah. Yeah. And, and, and very much so. I mean, this, this instinct, this intuition, it's very teachable. I mean, we'll, we'll tell people this is the case. And we see people when we give training sessions or especially in the training sessions, when we lay this out to people, you know, we see the light bulbs going over their eyes. I mean, I was I get introduced to an M&A guy. I'm out here in Los Angeles out in L.A. Longtime M&A guy, um, very successful guy. And we're sitting down at lunch the other day and He's a friend of a friend and he's, and he's helping me out with some stuff. So he says, you know, what are you guys doing? I said, look, we're not chasing business. And I started telling him what the issue was. And he, and I just saw the light bulbs going on over his head. He was like, Oh my God. Yeah. He says, we, I've been thinking about this a lot lately. How many, how much business are we chasing that we never get? And how much time are we wasting on it? This is an experienced guy. So we're helping people understand the challenges that everybody's facing but it has its own unique disguise in whatever industry they're in, but it's real common. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think anyone that's in, in business for themselves or in sales or marketing or any of that can definitely relate to uh, chasing deals that, you know, just aren't going to close or if they are, they're going to be a nightmare. And um, once you've done that a few times, you, you really try to limit or make sure that doesn't happen again. Um, I'd, I'd like to take a quick pivot and I'd love to get a little bit into the book and some of your experience um, serving in. in and I, I want to throw one more point in there too. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Just because we're not chasing your deal doesn't mean we're going to be mean to you. Mm. I mean, we, we, we live by rule that the last impression is a lasting impression. And we want to leave you with a positive impression. We're going to treat you with respect. We're going to make the interaction short. I don't hang up on anybody. So we will craft how we're going to finish the interaction with someone that's approach us, but it's not going to do business with us. And it'll be something to the effect of, look, it, it doesn't look like we can help you at this point in time. It looks like there's uh, a lot of really good reasons for you going in a different direction. But I want you to know we'd be happy to be dedicated to your success anytime we can help you in the future. Thanks for thinking about us. 
the last impression is a lasting impression. We want to plant those seeds. Just because we don't expect to do business with you now doesn't mean that we don't believe in positive karma in the universe or seeding future interactions. Just because I won't waste time with you doesn't mean I'm going to be mean to you. And I would assume that probably relates to a customer you lose and trying to make sure, again, you're not burning bridges and ending on ending on as good of terms as you possibly can. Always, 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 always. You can control an ending if you're determined to control it positively, always and positively. The last impression is the lasting impression. Yeah, and you never know when that buyer might go to a new company and then there's a great opportunity and then they say, hey, oh yeah, Chris Foss, I remember him. You know, he, he was, we had this brief exchange before and, you know, we left on good terms and it's just, or on the other hand saying, man, that guy was an asshole. You know, he hung up on me and there's no way we're doing this with them. So sure. the world's smaller than you think. Exactly. So yeah, I'd love to get, get into the book a little bit um, and into the experience from the FBI. And you were, you know, the lead hostage uh, negotiator for the FBI. And that's just such a, hearing your stories and reading about them, you just have such a unique you know, perspective and have had such unique experiences that very few people in the world can really relate to and, and can speak about. So I'd love to hear maybe just a brief synopsis from you on what your time in the FBI was like, and, and maybe we can dive into one or, the, one or two of the key negotiations from uh, some of the kidnappings that, that you had dealt with. Yeah, sure. I mean, it was awesome. I mean, I'm a small town boy from Iowa. Um, and the FBI was a great career. And no matter what you're into, the FBI investigates so many different kinds of crimes. You're going to find something that you, an area that you love, that you're going to want to investigate, that you're going to want to be involved in. If you, if you dedicate yourself to be you know, a career investigator, and I pretty much was. And I worked terrorism for a lot of years in New York. I was happy in New York. I loved it, which is shocking because I'm an Iowa guy. And then, you know, between my terrorism and I became a hostage negotiator, I ended up technically my job was lead international kidnapping negotiator, which is kind of ended up being a refined subset of our entire hostage negotiation program. But if an American got kidnapped anywhere in the world when I held that position, you know, it was my job to come up with a negotiation strategy working within all the agencies of the U.S. government to get them out. So, I, you know, I went to the National Security Council um, for a while, uh, the, the hostage working group was a committee that was chaired by a much more famous yep. man now. He was then Captain McRaven. He is now Admiral, retired Admiral Bill McRaven. He's famous for the book Make Your Bed and, uh, and, and, uh, and the speech of that same name as uh, Chancellor of the University of Texas school system. I mean, impressive guy. And he was Captain McRaven back then, and which was good for me. Because he was a great leader, leader and you needed somebody at the interagency, at the National Security Council, to lead all the agencies. So if an American gets grabbed in Haiti, uh, Baghdad, Bogota, Manila, it's my job to pull together the negotiation strategy to get that person out. So, And the unique thing of that was a lot of hostage negotiators... You know, they may have they may only have experience domestically in what we call contained sieges, bank robberies, a contained siege. I, I negotiated a bank robbery in New York City, but few have both. And the kidnapping experience internationally is it's really commodities exchange. Kidnappers are in business. It sounds horrific. The commodity happens to be human beings. You want to win a negotiation, you want to have the upper hand, you have to understand how the other side sees it. 
that's real easy when the other side sees things the same way you do. But I learned negotiation when the other side, by definition, saw it differently than, than we did. And so I was, and what I really did was I coached internationally. I coached negotiations all over the world, which was, it was a cool thing because I love coaching people and help, helping them get better. So, you know, it's, that was the last pretty much seven years of my life for the FBI. And when you were coaching people, essentially, that was because the, on the other end of the deal, the, um, the terrorist wanted to deal with someone that was local. So if they were in, you know, Manila or uh, wherever it was in the world, they want to deal with someone that was local so they could trust them more easily versus, you know, this guy that is living in New York that flies over and then he's going to talk to me. Is that essentially why you did coaching versus talk to them directly? Yeah, for uh, there were a lot of advantages. If I'm coaching you, if your brother gets kidnapped, if your colleague gets kidnapped, if your friend gets kidnapped, the bad guys are going to want to go at a weak link. So they're going to want to find somebody in that person's world, family, friend, colleague, that's got their stuff together just enough to be talked to, but not enough so they can really hold their own. So I'm going to, I'm going to show up, me and my guys, we're going to show up guys and gals. We're going to find somebody in the victim's world who's coachable and the bad and get the bad guys to drop their guard. And so we just need to find somebody that was coachable and then we'd coach them and then, and then we'd go. And in, in, in an intense moment, I can get you up to speed to be coached in about six to eight hours. And then it's just a matter of us keeping you up to speed and keeping going. Oh, so this would be, say, if my brother got kidnapped, it would be me going in. It wasn't someone else in the U.S. government that was pretending to be my brother. It would, or pretending to be me. It would actually be me. Yeah, and we, you know, these things take place over the phone. Yeah. So you know, in very rare instances, are they in person? But the bad guys don't want to see you in person because they're worried it's going to be a trick anyway. So, you know, we, oh, we can coach you from anywhere. I have coached negotiations from the, across the world. It's a little easier for all in the same time zone because at some point in time, we're going to have to get some sleep. Yeah. And a lot of those conversations, it sounds like, I mean, those took weeks and weeks and weeks for a negotiation, right? I mean, it wasn't just, you, you don't just talk someone off that ledge uh, and see your point of view in one hour. It's probably weeks or months. Well, it would, you know, uh, interesting. Good question. Terrorist cases in countries that terrorists have been kidnapping for a while tend to last a long time. Criminal cases, on the other hand, tend to go quicker because the criminals want the money. The terrorists have an infrastructure they can last a long time. Criminal kidnapping is probably going to go down in 21 days or less. Might go down by the coming weekend, as strange as that sounds. A uh, terrorist case is probably going to last much longer. So my brother gets kidnapped in some third world country, and you and I go fly out there just so we can be in the same time zone as them. And I get connected to the terrorists, and you're like, and you know, we have a day or two to connect, and you you're coaching me up. What are some of the first things that you're going to say to me um, to get my head right so well, that I can? First of all, we got we got to get a handle on your negotiation. We got to get your head cleared real fast. And as stupid as it sounds, I'm going to say, look, I want you to be afraid. 
I want you to be scared out of your mind. And that'll clear your head nearly instantly because you're going to go, what? That's stupid. That, and you're going to react just like that. That makes no sense. Why do you want me to be scared? Now, in reality, what I've just done is I've just tricked you into simply identifying the fear without str- the negative emotion without struggling with it. We now know in neuroscience, if I can get you to simply identify it, not deny it, but just identify it, it'll, it'll diffuse it, if not completely, significantly, instantaneously. And that's the first thing I'm going to do. And I can, I, I can trick you into diffusing it like that really, really fast. Okay. So that takes out or it, it doesn't remove my fear, but it, ma- it makes me so I acknowledge it and so I don't give into it and I can keep a level head during what is really a painful and frightening conversation where they might they may or may not kill my brother. Yeah, and then, then I'm going to lay out for you exactly what's going on and how we're going to get the upper hand and all the things we're going to do to the other guy, the bad guys, to catch him off guard in a stealth mode. I mean, we're, we're going to use deference against him. We're going to be passive aggressive. We're going to slow him down. We're going to wear him out. They're not going to know what hit him and they're not going to get mad because the whole time you're going to say, oh, you're going to say, oh my God, I'm so scared. Yeah. And that's what the bad guys are going to want to hear. They're going to want to hear that you're scared. They're going to feel in control. They're going to drop their guard. Secret to gaining the upper hand in any negotiation whether it's business or with a terrorist, is to give the other side the illusion of control. And that's how we're going to get the upper hand. And one of, the, one of my favorite pieces that I've heard you talk about is saying that terrorists have moms. And <laughs> that's something that is part of the negotiation where um, that's not something I, think, I don't think I've ever thought of, but makes a lot of sense. Maybe if you could describe what you mean by that a little bit and, and any examples you have around how you've used that. Well, you know, there's certain, there's certain commonalities to all human beings. We're, we're, we have a wiring. We have an emotional architecture we're born with because we're human. It's very much like the respiratory system. We all got the same set of lungs. They all work the same way. The emotional architecture is pretty much the same in all people. Now, pretty much everybody's got a mom. And as shocking as it is, we will wait for indicators of that. And we have caught more terrorists off guard, but at the right point in time, waiting to use the mom card, if you will. And with terrorists, with sociopaths, with killers. I mean, from, from the, a, a guy who was a head chopper and rape and murderist in the Philippines named Abu Sabaya to the head of ISIS, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi those guys across the board to Cuban inmates in a riot in a prison in Louisiana, all influenced because everybody's got a mom. And at some point in time, there's been um, uh, uh, an interaction there based on human nature that we can take advantage of. That's so interesting. And you're, and the way that you work with them or the way that you try to structure the end goal, um, I know that you've talked about a lot of people think that the goal of a negotiation is to say, um, you know, you're right or to say yes. And you teach quite the opposite that you try to get people to say no. And you end goal is for them to say that's right. Uh, I'd love for you to maybe give some more clarification around 
why that is and also how you plan for that. Again, if you're coaching me up, is that something that we talk about early on in that coaching session? Say, hey, if we're, we want to look at the very, very last thing they say is going to be, that's right. All right, now we need to backtrack from that. And now let's play the story backwards and see, take the steps of how we're going to get there. Well, and it's going to be context driven. You know, if, if we're in a kidnapping, driving for that's right is going to be something that we're probably going to do after we're about a third into it. What I really want to do is make the other side feel in control display a lot of deference, make them feel powerful, make them feel in charge. When people feel powerful and in charge, they relax and begin to drop their guard. And if you get somebody to say, that's right, you've actually created a bond between you and them. And they, so we want them to drop their guard. Then we want to create this bond that they don't even know is there. So there's going to be a sequencing issue, but we want the other side. We want, we want the intimidating control oriented, fear-wielding negotiator to feel in charge right away. How do you do that? You know, it's principally saying, look, you're going to get your deal. And with a kidnapper, we're going to say, you're going to get your money. How do we know the hostage is alive? And they're going to be perplexed by that. <laughs> <laughs> they're going to stop and think. Mm-hmm. They're going to hear the sweet words, we're going to get our deal. They're going to relax. And then how do we know the hostage is alive? It's a legitimate question. What it does is it triggers what Daniel Kahneman called in thinking fast and slow, slow thinking, in-depth thinking. Daniel Kahneman won the Nobel Prize in behavioral economics for explaining how we're really driven. We're really driven by our fears of loss, all human beings. Loss is the outsized motivator. And... If we can trigger slow thinking, we weigh the other side down. It bogs them down. But they, you said, how, when you say, how, how, how do we know that we're alive? Say it very deferentially. It's actually a legitimate question. And you, you, you pitch it in a way where the other side realizes, like, oh, yeah, you know, that is a legitimate question. And that's now you're in a new conversation. How, do, how would they respond to that? Would they, they wouldn't put that person on the phone. They would just say, oh, yeah, they're alive. They're alive. Exactly right. And so what then we're looking at a sequence because then we'll say, well, how, how do we pay if we don't know they're alive? I mean, how do we know? And how much, you're going to get your money, but how am I supposed to give it to you if I don't know he's alive? And, the, and what, what happens is they may never change their answer. But what's more important is that mindset I've now got them in, which is they feel in control, but I'm wearing them out. And also when they get off the phone, what they're going to do is they're going to turn to their colleagues and they're going to say, do we need to put the hostage on the phone? Um, where is the hostage? If we got to put them on the phone, how are we going to do it? What kind of shape is the hostage in? Well, we better make sure the hostage is able to talk on the phone if we decide to do it. And I'm not saying we're going to, but now you cause an, an entire dynamic. And how do I know this happens? Because hostages told us about it afterwards. The first time we made this shift after the kidnapping, when the hostage escaped, he said, you know, they kept getting together and talking about whether or not they were going to take me to town and put me on the phone. 
And the mere act of doing that made meant they had to take care of the hostage and they had to lighten up on the hostage and they had to see the hostage as a human being, which then changed the entire game and created the dynamic that gave this guy a chance to get away. So it's what do you do that creates opportunities is what you're really looking to do in the negotiation. If you're paying attention to the way that you phrase those questions, um, you mentioned or you began all of them with how, right? And I think you've mentioned over and over uh, on some of the things I've read and, and listened to that it's not about asking why. That kind of puts people on the defensive a little bit. Why would we give you the money or anything like that? It's, hey, how are we supposed to give you the money if we don't know they're alive? Uh, what's, the, what's the power of how? Well, how is deferential. People love to tell other people how to do stuff. So you're taking responsibility for how a question lands. And the most deferential questions are what and how combined with a great tone of voice, you know, master's tone of voice. And then pointed avoidance of certain things who create bad reactions. Now, unfortunately, every human being on a planet, when we were two or three years old, no matter what country we were in, no matter what language we spoke, when we were three, when we knocked something over, we made a mistake, we did something wrong, our parents looked at us and said, why did you do that? And pointed a finger in our face. And from three, age three on, all of us have been conditioned that when somebody says why, they're mad at us and we're being accused. And that gets so drilled into us that across the globe, why triggers anger and defensiveness when you ask the other side that question. You mentioned the tone of voice as well. One of my the, the favorite parts of what you say is uh, using your late night FM DJ voice. And ah, it, yeah. you, could, you could tell if anyone that's listening to this, play it back to the, the points where we're having a conversation like this, your voice is completely different to when you're saying the questions that you would ask the terrorist and it's slow and lower and um that that kind of what lulls them to sleep a there little bit and again makes them more at ease like you're not yelling at them you're, you're keeping things very calm and cool i have been laying a late night fm dj voice all over you since uh, we got started <laughs> yes i have <laughs> <laughs> and and that's just your way of calming them down and keeping everything even keel. It literally slows the brain down. I mean, I it's the equivalent of me reaching into your brain and taking the dial that turns the electrical activity in your brain from end to end down. Um, and it, we know this now from neuroscience. We have mirror neurons in our heads. And I am firing the mirror neurons and, and you're reacting involuntarily. If you can see me, if you can hear me, it's not a conscious choice. Before we had neuroscience, I actually had a hypnotherapist, psychologist hypnotherapist. When I, I went, I used to always talk to hostage negotiators in depth about voice. And he walks up to me after I spent easily 30 minutes laying this out for people. And at the break, he said, that was the first thing we were taught in hypnotherapist training. And I didn't, I thought it calmed people down. It does because you're shutting the brain down. And it's an involuntary response. That's why terrorists don't yell at hostage negotiators. But people in business deals yell at each other all the time. 
more business people have stories of counterparts screaming at them than hostage negotiators have stories of terrorists screaming at them. Terrorist negotiations are calmer. How stupid is that? <laughs> it is. That's crazy. That's really crazy. And every everyone has a story of uh, someone that in the business world has negotiated them. You know, just like the angry, aggressive. You know, pounding the table, yelling, uh, "My way or the highway." And that that just doesn't make you want to work with them at all. It, it actually is very counterproductive. It makes me not want to do a deal with someone like that. Is is that what you found? Um, with most really aggressive types is that they need to be coached down a little bit so that they can be more relatable to someone that's more even keel naturally? Yeah. Um, and it depends upon why they're aggressive. I mean, some people are aggressive because they're afraid you're not going to listen to them if they're not aggressive. Uh, an awful lot of it is fear-driven behavior. Some people are aggressive because they got they once got 10% of what they wanted by being angry. I mean, like I can remember hearing hearing a person in a line at a hotel talking about how she once got ten percent off by complaining at the hotel. Or I was it was a girl I was dating. We're in Macy's and she found a jacket she wanted that had this tiny flaw in it. She said, Watch me get ten percent off by telling them what's wrong with this jacket. And I said, Watch me get thirty percent off by being nice. <laughs> <laughs> But she had no idea she could get 30% off by being nice. She 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 had been a jerk and aggressive and angry and got 10% and went like, ooh, that works. Having no idea how much better you could do with a much smarter approach. Well, that brings me into a question I've been wanting to ask you this whole time and since I've started researching this. You say that the toughest negotiation is the one that you don't know you're in. And you could make the argument, and you probably will, that – almost your entire life is a negotiation, whether it's personal or family or business. So wh what do you mean by that quote? And how can we become more aware of when we are in actual negotiations? Like, Yeah, the most dangerous negotiation is the one you don't know that you're in, which means if you're in a negotiation, you don't know it, you're already losing. You're already either losing or being taken advantage of or both. Now you're in a negotiation when, when anybody's trying to get anybody else to say yes to anything, or the words I want are in your head because negotiation is communication desired to influence an outcome where you want to get what you want. And you might not even need the other side to know that they're giving you what you want. Uh, you might just be wanting to get them to change a course of action. Most people think you're in a negotiation when you're talking about money, but as a commodity, money is probably involved in, maybe 20% of the actual negotiations that take place. The commodity that's always at stake in every negotiation is time. How much time are you going to spend doing this? What are you going to do in order to get this money? Time is the commodity. And anytime you're talking about trying to affect how you're spending your time or how somebody else is spending their time to engage in an action or to not engage in an action, you're in a negotiation, which as you said, there's easily four or five negotiations every single day. You're in a negotiation when you walk into a restaurant and how you say hello to the maitre d', it's going to affect how quickly the waiter gets over to you. The, nego the negotiation for the waiter's time, the negotiator's negotiation for the maitre d's time, how you communicate with them from the very beginning, how long it takes you to get served, 
how long it takes them to come back to your table, whether or not they spend any time coming back to your table to follow up. That's an investment in the waiter's time. You're in that negotiation from the moment you walk into the restaurant. It's it's everywhere. That's really interesting because you put, it seems like you put so much thought and effort and prep work into these negotiations. Let's let's say maybe if we stick to a business negotiation, you're working on a big deal. Uh, I would imagine you spend time putting in with the team. You know, here's where we think this conversation might go. Here are the questions we should ask. Here's the tone we should have. But with all these other negotiations happening in life, you know, whether you're going to a restaurant or um, you know your your husband or wife wants to go somewhere that you don't want to, or you're something from your kids or whatever it is that comes up in life, are you always are you like in constant late night DJ voice or like, do you, are you thinking about all this all the time or maybe <laughs> place less emphasis on some of the smaller negotiations? Well, personal interactions, my smile is going to get me a lot farther than my DJ voices. So I'm going to use that. And, you know, since I'm trying to collaborate with you, so we both come out happy, then I got no problem negotiating all the time. I want you to feel understood. I want you to feel appreciated, respected. I want you to feel like you got what you wanted. I don't want you to feel like you lost. So where am I coming from from the very beginning? Am I trying to take advantage of you or am I trying for both of us to have a better day or better life? First part, where am I coming from? Second part, the crazy thing is, you know, our negotiation tactics that we use, we have a tendency to use the same ones over and over and over again. Like we've got labels something called labels, which is if you say it seems like, it sounds like, it looks like, it feels like. The label, it seems like this is important to you, is a great way to get your counterpart to open up, whether you're talking to them with your girlfriend or your wife about going to dinner, or whether you're talking with a colleague about how you're going to approach a problem. You have a tendency to, there's, there's five or six things that, that are so effective regardless of the interaction you just start going back to your go-to moves. Where did you learn all? Did you just learn all these through the FBI and through experiences? Or were there, I know you mentioned uh, uh, McRaven and some of the other leaders uh, in the military, but was it from those people? Was there other books you picked up on or just through throughout time you learned these experiences? Well, I love learning. I mean, I'm constantly on it. I, you know, I'm from the, the Elon Musk school of philosophy or Mark Cuban or any of these superstars that talk about reading and learning all the time. You know, Mark Cuban says he reads three hours a day. Warren Buffett reads 500 pages a day. I mean, these guys are consuming information. Now, I first started learning this stuff. I, I, to become a hostage negotiator, I had to volunteer on a suicide hotline. That was the only way I could get qualified. But I was so fascinated you know, by the masterclass on human emotions that that gave me, that I wanted to apply it to everything that I did. And I was constantly fascinated by how influential that process was. And I thought, this has to work everywhere. And it does. And so I've been, I've had, been having a ball applying this and, you know, making better relationships with people. I, I remember, or, or, uh, I've been on the hotline for a couple of years. I'm in New York. I'm talking to a, a female FBI agent and she's bitching about New York. She hates New York. And this was a young lady that a year and a half earlier, she loved working in New York. Now I happen to know that she had been dating my friend and she broke up. 
And I remember looking at her and I thinking like, she's being driven emotionally by what's going on in her personal life. And it's, it's ruining everything else here. And I just looked at her and I said, you're still really hurting inside, aren't you? And she, she dead, dead, silent, stone faced tear comes down her cheek. And that was part of her releasing the anger that she was, the pain that she was holding inside, which was then a toxin for everything else that her interaction with. She ended up staying in New York for a bunch more years. And in and, and whatever small way I help her, I help to get over that by just doing an emotional read in the moment. She's not mad at New York. New York didn't stink. She's hurting. So I, that's all I said. And what does that do for me? It, it, I have better friendships. I have people I interact with for longer periods of time. People that I connect with, I talk to them every two or three years. And we start back up again as if we've been talking weekly. I mean, these are, these are the key to deeper relationships, you know, reading somebody's emotions. And that's so important. And how, how many of the, I think you were about 150 uh, of those situations in the FBI. I don't know how many on, on the suicide hotline and, and probably many in business. How many losses of a negotiation did you have? in the FBI and in the suicide hotline days, like were there, were there situations where they killed the, they killed the person or you had to give them the full ransom uh, where you completely failed? Or was it usually at the very least you got some, you salvaged some sort of victory out of it? Yeah. Well, if you're in a hostage business, stuff's going to go sideways on you eventually. So anybody that says that they, they were hostage negotiated and nothing ever went bad, they, they were involved in, less than 10 situations, probably less than five. Um, you know, they're just, they're just some, there's some lids screwed on so tight, nobody can get them off. There's no matter how good you do, you're not going to change the outcome. Um, I, my former boss, Gary Nessner taught us that we don't guarantee success. We guarantee the best chance of success, which is a recognition at the beginning. There might be some things that are out of reach. That doesn't mean you still don't try. And one way or another, we salvaged an element from each one of those cases that ended up being a positive contribution in another case. So we lengthened it out. We brought the bad guys out of their comfort zone. We made them look bad in the media if they were terrorists. Um, one way or another, we salvaged something out of it. But you're not, you know, you're not going to, it's not going to go right every time. You have to accept that, which is, you know, it's a tough thing to do because most of them do. So when something goes bad, you know, you might, you might lose your appetite for it. You might decide you need to go do something else, but there's no guarantee of success, no matter what the situation is. And accepting that early on helps cushion a blow when, when that, when that bad day comes. Yeah. I mean, I'm trying to put myself in your position. That's a taxing job to have so long. Did you, how did you recover mentally from those long conversations did you were you i don't know working out or med meditating or you mentioned read a lot or you try to decompress another way yeah you know <laughs> i had my hard partying days i will i would like to admit yeah. that. <laughs> that too that too you know there was a uh, uh there was a steakhouse in washington dc that i was in every tuesday night for a steak and a scotch <laughs> if i was in the country you know, but, you know, you, you got to take care of yourself and all the things that you should be doing for yourself help you deal with any kind of stress that you're under. You know, 
you, you want to be as healthy as possible. You want to eat properly. You, 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 you want to work out. You want to, want to have a spiritual life of some time. You want to believe in things that are bigger than you. Um, because you're going to need that stuff because the world is going to kick your ass <laughs> at some point <laughs> in time. The world is going to pound you down and kick your ass. But that's part of living because you come, you, it's resilient. I mean, you, you, you get back up. You know that somebody else has got it harder than you, no matter how hard you got hit. I, I got a buddy of mine from Washington, D.C. that's still recovering from like his second or third brain surgery. I mean, I got no problems compared to some of the stuff that other people are dealing with. So it's keeping it in perspective and, you know, finding a way to, you know, believe in something bigger than you. Yeah, that's super important. Um, and I have, I feel that a, a few questions from the audience before this too, that maybe be a good way to close this out. So I have a few of those, if, if you still have some time for that. Sure. One of them is around finding common ground. And um, you know, the question is, how do you find common ground with someone whom you have nothing in common with or begin to understand someone's opinion that you vehemently oppose? Yeah, you know what? Let that go. Um, I learned negotiation from the very beginning with common ground is unnecessary. It is not a necessary element for understanding. And understanding is not agreement. You know, I learned from, by definition, the other person on the other side of this one is going to have no commonality with me. I still need to establish empathy, which is not sympathy and it's not agreement. And if you can define it that narrowly, it's an incredibly powerful definition. I can understand where you're coming from without agreeing with it in any way, shape or form. That's really hard for most people. They can only understand what they agree with. You take your skill level to the master level. And as a matter of fact, you can't get to the master level unless you can understand without agreeing, unless you can understand while simultaneously disagreeing without having the need to express your disagreement. That's when you become a black belt. And you put yourself mentally in their shoes and say, all right, even though I am so against what Chris is saying right now, I don't believe in any of it. I think it's disgusting. I think it's terrible. I get why he's saying it. I understand that he truly believes this. And because I can put myself in your shoes, make myself kind of feel what you're feeling in that sense, that will allow me to negotiate more clearly and have better conversation. Well, I can, I can articulate where you're coming from without agreeing with it. I mean, early on in my, in my New York days, early on, we were working Islamic terrorism. I'd, I'd sit down with a Muslim and I'd say, you know, you believe there's been a succession of United States governments from the last 200 years that have been anti-Islamic. And then I would shut up. And you just watch this startled look come over their face and have them go, yeah. No, I never said that it was true or that they were right or they were wrong. I said, you believe there's been a succession of United States governments for roughly the last 200 years that have been anti-Islamic. That is a complete and accurate encapsulation of their belief system. And they're suddenly stunned and want to hear more from you when you can articulate their perspective. I didn't agree. I didn't disagree. And I actually said something that sounded like it was against my interest. But all I said was, this is what you believe. Wow. Yeah, that's powerful. Um, to, to get to the next question from the audience, by the time that this comes out, we're going to be in the uh, season of where there, I think there's a lot of salary negotiations towards the end of the year. People, I think, tend to hop jobs a little bit more. And you've mentioned that 
you know, price is the most sensitive thing uh, or sensitive piece of a negotiation, I believe. Uh, but there's a lot of like tangibles that you can be asking for that you can use as levers. Um, could you maybe dive into that a little bit and um, other things that people can be using um, in their negotiations outside of just here's what I want my salary to be? Yeah, price pays your bills, but it doesn't guarantee your future. And you can get a great salary and get fired in a year. So uh, negotiate your future, not, and your salary will come along with it. Negotiate your value. What do I mean by that? You want to work on either critically important strategic pro projects or you want to run to problems. You know, I, I remember hearing an executive once say, run to trouble. First of all, you're not going to have that much competition and you're going to have an opportunity to distinguish yourself. And since it was a problem to start with, you're probably not going to make it any worse. So it's a great opportunity to distinguish yourself. There's a, and again, that's not focused on salary, but now you start hitting home runs on behalf of your company. You either build up a tremendous resume of being a fixer, and then you're ridiculously marketable. And then as soon as you start to market yourself, your company's like, oh, oh, oh I can't get rid of this person. They're too valuable. Now, sort of simultaneous with that, there's a, a friend of mine that I went to high school with, a small town in Iowa. This guy's the head of an international bank. He's got no advanced degree. He didn't go to a big college. He's got no family connections. He's got no alumni connections. He's got nothing other than ability, but he's always been determined wherever he went. He said, I want to be involved in projects that are critical to the strategic future of this organization. And people go like, wow. That's cool. And simultaneously, he's always involved in important projects. And because they're important, he's always got visibility with the top levels of whatever organization he's in. So not only does he produce, but the people on top know he's a producer. And he went from small town Iowa, the town we both grew up in of 7,000 people, to now he's the head of an international bank. It's not a bad path. No. That's awesome. That's really good advice. Uh, and maybe along those lines on one of the last questions here for you, is there anything that you would tell your 25 year old self that you know now that you wish you knew then? You know, um, be a little nicer, be a little more pleasant. Like don't, don't take any positions that are different than the ones that you took. Don't, don't change your principles. Don't go after the same problems. Don't address, you know, don't change anything other than how you address stuff. Just take a few miles an hour off of your, off of your speedball. And you don't sacrifice, you don't compromise yourself in any way, but you make it easier for other people to collaborate with you. You plant less negative seeds. You go from being the blunt jerk to being the straight shooter that everybody appreciates and likes to be around. And I was pretty blunt in my younger days. And I could have accomplished more by being a little less blunt. Uh, it's, I am a recovering blunt person. <laughs> I, I go to you know, Blunt Anonymous or whatever it is, you know, we're kind of <laughs> on a regular basis. Yeah. yeah. Oh, that's awesome. So, um, Man, this is a great conversation. Um, the book, 
for everyone out there, if you have not checked it out, please do. It's it's called Never Split the Difference, negotiating as if your life depended on it. And seriously, I mean, you think about all the negotiations that you're in on a daily basis. I know a lot of you are either entrepreneurs or in sales and marketing, but even outside of that, the people that you work with on a day-to-day, your relationship, your families, when you're going out to eat, you know, there's a lot of negotiations that happen. Um, and I think this was voted uh, or, or recognized by Inc. as one of the, the top negotiation books of all time. So um, definitely check out the book. And Chris, maybe if you could share where we can find you. I know you got a, um, a newsletter um, where we can find more, more out about Black Swan and social media. Yeah, the, our newsletter, The Edge, people love it as a supplement to the book. It's free. It comes out once a week. Um, you subscribe to it via email, and it's a short, sweet article that gives you specific guidance and different ways of uh, we talk about stuff that really kind of tees you up on Tuesday morning so you can rock and roll and, and help you negotiations throughout the week. Short, digestible, easy-to-read articles. The best way to subscribe to The Edge, and The Edge is also the gateway to all of our training. So send a text message, send the message FBI Empathy, all one word. Don't let your spell check make it two words. Make sure the autocorrect doesn't put a space between FBI and Empathy. Send FBI Empathy to the number 22828. That's 22828. FBI Empathy, it'll sign you up for the newsletter. There are announcements when we got upcoming training. You'll learn about other free negotiation stuff we have. It'll take you right to the website, and it's the gateway to everything that we do. That's cool. Does the newsletter come then via text, or do you sign up then through email once you text that? You will uh, you get a response to supply your email address, and it'll come into your email in- inbox. Awesome. Really cool. Um, well, Chris, I appreciate you've been very generous with your time, with your wisdom. Um just really glad to have this conversation. Thanks so much for coming on and, and for everyone else, check out the book, check out the newsletter and, and look Chris up for, for more questions. Tom, thank you for having me on. This conversation was a pleasure. All right, guys. Thanks so much for listening to that episode. Really hope you liked it. Uh, if you did, if you found any value, wherever you're listening to this, uh, please head on over uh, and give it a five-star rating subscribe, review, whether it's on the iTunes app, whether it's on Google Play, Stitcher, SoundCloud, YouTube, if it's there. Um, Really appreciate you. You can find me at TomAlamo.com, T-O-M-A-L-A-I-M-O.com for the blog, all the show notes, and Tommy Tahoe uh, on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube. Find me on Facebook. I'm everywhere. So thanks so much. Grateful for you. Have a great week. Out. Great week. It week out. 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 What's up, everybody? Thanks for checking out that podcast. Uh, happy July to you. Uh, would love if you took 22 seconds and hit subscribe wherever you're listening or watching this. Uh, Apple, Spotify, YouTube, your favorite podcast player. And be sure to check out some of my content on LinkedIn. Uh, I'm Tom Alamo. And on Twitter and Instagram, I'm at Tommy Tahoe. Have a great day. Make it legendary. Peace.